0: Let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Galatians chapter 2. There's a great danger in putting faith in a preacher rather than in the message of the preacher. It's very easy for us to to adopt a favorite preacher, whether that be on the radio or maybe uh, on TV or more likely on the Internet. And yet, we have to be careful that we don't shift from admiring that person or from admiring the Gospel that they preach to admiring or or venerating them or worshiping that preacher of the Gospel. Because no matter how godly and no matter how often they speak, every single preacher, including myself, is sinful and is prone to mistake and prone to misunderstanding and every preacher is prone to ultimate defection. That is, turning away from the faith. Now, that doesn't mean we go too far the other extreme and be disrespectful to authority and and, uh, not value these men who train us in godliness and doctrine. But we must be careful the authority that governs our life is not rooted in the person that speaks the message, but in the message itself. Because the message is what is flawless, what is perfect. Paul affirms this in chapter 1 of Galatians verses 8 and 9 when he said, If anyone, including myself, or, or even an angel from heaven, comes and gives to you another gospel other than the one that I preached to you, then let that person be eternally condemned. See, the message, Paul is saying, is far more valuable than the messenger. The message is far more valuable than the messenger. And when that is what is the center of our focus, when the gospel itself, the message itself, is at the center of what we love and what we believe, then God gets the glory not the human preacher. God gets the glory because it's His message. And so praise is not given to the preacher of the message. Praise is given to the God of the message. Paul has been showing in this book that the message of these false teachers that have been infiltrating into the Galatian churches has been a false message. In chapter 1, verse 10, he shows Paul shows that he was not preaching in order to please men. this was not in order for me to to please men because if if I'm going to please men that I'm not a bond servant of Christ he says. And then in verses eleven and following he shows that that he was independent of the apostles for his understanding of the gospel and not that the apostles are unimportant, but for him he was an apostle himself and he wanted to show that his message didn't come from someone else and then get altered in some way. Because apparently that's what the Judaizers were saying. That he had taken the message, he learned it from the apostles, but he, he, he's not one of the pillar apostles. So he learned it from them and then he twisted it and then he gave it to you because he wanted to please you. Paul says, no. My gospel came directly from Jesus Christ, by direct revelation from Christ. They were trying to show that he wasn't an apostle. And Paul was saying, no, I am, in fact, an apostle. And he also goes on to say, towards the end of chapter 1, that I didn't learn from the Jerusalem churches. The center of the gospel, when Jesus came, was in Jerusalem. And the center of the beginning of the church was in Jerusalem. It it was the hub of of the Christian faith. And so, it would make sense that the ones who were most grounded in the faith were the ones around Jerusalem, the Judean area. But Paul says, I wasn't even there for that long. Remember, I I was in Syria and Cilicia, so I didn't get it from the Jerusalem churches, and I didn't get it from Jerusalem itself because I was only there for 15 days in the first decade of my after after my conversion. And so, in this section, Paul shows that he is not inferior to the other apostles, but rather he is in harmony with them. Okay, so. He doesn't want to minimize who they are, but He wants to show that He is really in harmony with them, on the same plane with them, because He also has received direct revelation from Christ, just as they have. So let me read our passage for us this morning, chapter 2, verses 1-10. through We'll see what God has for us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he's a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Paul has been proving in verses 10 through 24 of chapter 1 that his gospel is the true gospel. And he says it is because it's rightly motivated, verse 10, verses 11 and 12, that it comes from Christ, verses 13 through 17. That it comes from God, that it is sourced in God, it was something that God did a work in, he gives all the glory to God, that my salvation was not of myself, my calling as an apostle was not of myself. and then he goes on to show that he didn't receive his gospel from the apostles from the Jerusalem church or from even the, the uh, from the Jerusalem church or from the churches around Jerusalem. And now he continues to prove that his gospel is the true gospel. look at verse eleven because he wants. I want to show you what, what he's trying to prove here. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Or, in other words, it was not something that man made up or that I made up. That's what I'm trying to prove here. He's done that verses 10 through 24. Now he continues in chapter 2. And he gives two more reasons why his gospel is the true gospel. And the first reason... It's found in verses 1 through 5. And that is that the apostles, that is the pillar apostles, confirmed Paul's convert. They confirmed Paul's convert. We're going to get to him when we see, when we see him in verse 3. That is Titus. But we're, what we're going to see is that when Paul brings Titus along with him, presents him and the gospel message that he gave to Titus to the pillar apostles, so to speak, they don't compel him to be circumcised. They don't say, Titus, in order for you to be saved, you have to take on these Jewish customs. And so Paul says, if the, the apostles themselves, these apostles that you venerate, they accept, it, then if, accept Titus, then certainly they accept my gospel. Okay, so the reason Paul's gospel is the true gospel is because the apostles affirm his convert. That is, apart from circumcision or Jewish. Ritual. In verses 1 and 2, Paul gives a timeline of when this took place. He says, The Spirit sent me to Jerusalem. Notice the first word in verse 1. Then. It is the same word that starts in verse 18 and verse 21 of chapter 1. Showing that Paul here is continuing his thought. In verses uh, 13 through 7, he talks about his conversion. And then he says, Then, verse 18 of chapter 1, Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. Verse 21. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then, notice how long. After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Here's what Paul's saying From the time that I was saved, I went to Jerusalem how many times? Are you following that? Twice. Okay, once, chapter 1, verse 18. Three years after his conversion, and the second time. 14 years later. Okay, so if we put it on a timeline, he gets saved at year zero, he goes to Jerusalem in year three, and year 17. It's the only two times he goes to Jerusalem in the first 17 years after his conversion. And so, so we, we notice that, that, that his gospel is not rooted in a city or a, a tradition Or something like that, or or in these people that are surrounding Jerusalem, but in Jesus Christ himself. Notice why he goes up there in verse two. It was because of a revelation that I went up. And what is Paul talking about here? Why did Paul go to Jerusalem the second time? Turn to Acts chapter eleven and verse twenty seven. As I've mentioned before, some people take this second visit to Jerusalem as the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, but I've argued that this is actually referring to the famine relief visit, which means, do you remember when Barnabas was in Antioch and he needed someone to come and help ground the believers in the faith? Who did he get? He got Paul, right? He grabbed him from Tarsus, where Paul had been, and he goes and they go to Antioch and they stay there apparently a year. And during that time, they gather up some funds to take back to the Jerusalem church. And we'll read about that here. And and that's I believe the second visit to Jerusalem. Notice chapter eleven verse twenty-seven. Acts chapter eleven verse twenty-seven. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Okay, now you remember back in Galatians chapter 2, Paul said it was because of a revelation that I went up to Jerusalem. Now, if if what I'm suggesting is correct that this second visit is a fame and relief visit, what type of revelation would Paul have received to go to Jerusalem? Did you notice that in this passage? It is verse 28. Agabus stood up and began to indicate, notice, by the spirit. That is direct revelation. There were these prophets during this time of the church. Remember, they didn't have the completed revelation like we do, the Scriptures. And so there were prophets who would often reveal to people God's Word, God's will. And so here, he gets a revelation of what's going to happen. There's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. It's going to affect the the, the churches around Jerusalem. And they're already cramped as far as their financial budget because if you remember the, the history... That, that as people are coming up for Passover, Jesus Christ is crucified and then this whole new faith begins. That is, this, this belief that Jesus Christ is the way and that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Messiah. And, and so what you have is all these people who live outside of Jerusalem coming back to Jerusalem to worship. Now they want to find out more about this Christian faith. They want to find out more about this Jesus. And so they need to be grounded and they stay in Jerusalem, which means that the Jerusalem churches is is bursting at the seams with so many people and they're trying to take care of all these people who don't have a lot of money probably because they they don't live there. They're have, having to rent a place and probably uh, not working full time, not able to work full time because they're, they're there in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem... The Jerusalem church was already cramped and now the famine comes. Agabus predicts it. And so Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas here, and Antioch tell the church about it. And Agabus tells the church about it. And then the church decides, you know what, we're going to send you with some money to Jerusalem to help take care of their need. And so it, it fits with what's going on in Galatians chapter 2. Go back to Galatians chapter 2. Okay, I'll, I'll talk next time. Next time we look at this um, this passage, which will be two weeks from now, um, Galatians chapter two, verses eleven and following. We'll see why this cannot be the Jerusalem Council. This second visit. So, what did Paul do when he got there? Seventeen years after his conversion, he goes there because Agabus says there's going to be a famine. He takes the money with Barnabas. What, what did he do when he got there? Notice verse 2. Second part of the verse says, And I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. He says, I submitted to them the gospel. Now, when we first read that, when we think of submission, it sounds like Paul is putting himself underneath the teaching of the, the apostles. But that's not what he's suggesting. Because the word here that's translated, submitted in the New American Standard is probably better translated as presented. Okay, let me just give you an example in Acts chapter 25. uh, Felix submits Paul's case before Festus. Okay, the idea is not that he's submitting himself underneath Festus, but that he is presenting Paul's case before Festus. Okay, so Paul's not. What's going on here? Is he saying I didn't? I'm not submitting to them, put myself underneath them because I am one of them. No, I'm not submitting. I'm presenting my gospel. That's what he's doing here. I presented the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. Remember, this is the gospel that's in question because the Judaizers are saying that this cannot be the true gospel because there's no Jewish rituals that go along with it. You're saying that a that a person who is uncircumcised can come to Christ. And and that's not consistent with the last several thousand years of the faith. So you're actually denying the faith, Paul. And Paul's saying, the one that I taught to the Gentiles, I presented it. I laid it out there. I laid out my case before the apostles to show them. Notice how he does it. He does it in private. He does it to those who were of reputation. Reputation. I don't think he's um, trying to, to to get it verified. Hey, what do you think? Is this good enough? Is this some? Is this the right thing? Again, he already knows it's the right thing. All of chapter one's been talking about that. He knows it's the right gospel. He's simply presenting it to them to show that it is the right gospel. And notice who he presents it to: those who are of reputation. And we'll see. Uh, Paul uses that sort of language, reputation, several more times. Notice verse 9. In recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed or of reputation to be pillars. Okay, So that's who who he presented it to. The first time he went, remember, he only saw Peter and James. And the second time he goes to Jerusalem, now we found out that he sees Peter, James and John, or Cephas, James and John. He presents his Gospel to them. And he does it in private. He's not looking for validity. He's not expecting them to doubt his gospel. But he recognizes that if they were to reject his gospel, it would have significant effect on the outcome of the churches or on the nature of the churches that he's already built, that he's already planted. He has to go back to them and say, listen, those three men don't accept the gospel that I've been teaching. I know it's the right one because it's from God. But they don't accept it at this time. And they're not right. Remember what he said in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? If anyone, if anyone, Peter, James, and John included, preach another gospel, then they are to be accursed. So that's that's the idea. Paul is not concerned about them accepting it or not. He simply recognizes there's going to be some trickle-down effect. I'm going to have to go back to these churches. I'm going to have to explain some things. So in a sense, he didn't need their validation. But in another sense, he couldn't do without it because he needed to to make sure that the foundation he had built in these churches was intact. So this Gospel was presented before the pillar apostles. And it was a Gospel in verses 3-5 through of grace. It was a Gospel of grace, not works. Paul brings up a critical question we could say that had to be answered in the old testament circumcision was required to be a part of the covenant community if you wanted to be a part of israel you had to be circumcised so here's the question is circumcision circumcision required to be a part of the new testament church and that's what paul wanted to make sure was answered clearly now we know what where the agitators fell on this right Turn over to chapter 6. And we'll see this. The, the Judaizers, these false teachers who had come in that snuck their way into church and were leading people astray. Chapter 6, verse 12. We know where they stand on this. Does a person need to be circumcised to be a part of the New Testament church? Even receive saving faith? And the answer is found in verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, Paul's talking here, try to compel you to be circumcised Simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, so that you may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Okay, so we know where the, the false teachers stood. You have to adopt the Jewish customs if you're going to have legitimate saving faith and if you're going to be a part of this church, you have to adopt the Jewish customs. But Paul recognized them as clearly wicked. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, just think Gentile there, was compelled to be circumcised. Not even Titus. Verse 4, But but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spite our liberty which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the Gospel would remain with you. Paul clearly sees these agitators as not just... Oh, just misguided Christians. He sees these people from as as the, as they are from the pit of hell, messengers of Satan. He calls them false brothers. That is, they come into our church and they look like brothers. They, they, it seems like they really are one of us, but he calls them false. Notice the words he uses for them in verse four. False, brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out and at the end to bring us into bondage. They secretly sneaked in to spy out us, so that they would bring us into bondage. They are like the undercover agents. They look like every other spiritual leader that had come to their church prior to this, but they were really employed by Satan to turn others away from the faith notice their ultimate goal at the end of verse 4 they wanted to bring us into bondage how are they going to bring us into bondage paul's suggesting that if the this gentile church if this church had adopted jewish customs fully and they had believed what these false teachers were saying they wouldn't have had freedom but rather they would, have been put, they would have put themselves into bondage. They are forcing Jewish rituals upon themselves, upon newly converted Gentiles. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about being circumcised, right? But Paul purposely did not allow, verse 3, he did not allow Titus to be circumcised because he wanted to take a stand against the false teachers. I don't want you or any people in the Galatian church to ever think that it was because of something you did that you came to Christ. It wasn't something you did. It was all of Christ. Paul says that this subjection to the law was a form of bondage. They thought that this would bring freedom. See, we have all this pressure on us by the Jews to to adopt their rituals. And so if we want to get out from under that weight, we can be free by adopting them. The Paul says, "No, you're actually bondaging yourself. You're, you're putting yourself into bondage as a result of this, this, uh, this effort to be free, and you're also enslaving others. And this is the conundrum of the unbeliever. They think they're free. They think that they don't have to obey anybody. That they're not under any law, but actually they are enslaved to sin. Jesus said in John chapter 8, when He's talking to the Jews, that you've been enslaved all your life. And if you want to be free, then I'll give you freedom. Okay? You have to follow Me to be free. But here's the thing. is even when you follow Christ, you're not fully free. And Jesus said that in John chapter 8. He said, either you're a slave of sin like you have been for all these years, or you're a slave of righteousness. So, so if you think that you don't want to get up underneath what God is calling you to do, then you, you may think that you're okay over here. I'm just going to go to my sin, but actually you have become a slave to sin. You were born a slave to sin. And that's the conundrum of the unbeliever. He's enslaved to sin, And He doesn't want to be free. Romans 8 talks about it in this way. That in our flesh, our sinful nature is unable to please God. We don't even want to please God. And that's why we need God's grace. Because God's grace is unearned, unmerited, and unwanted favor. We we can't earn it We can't do enough things to say, God, now it's time for You to save me. It's time for You to pour Your blessing on me. We can't do that. It has to be a work that God does in us. And we don't even want to do that. That's the thing about the unbelievers. They're they're steeped in their sin. They're enslaved in their sin. They don't want to come out until the Spirit changes them. It has to be a work of the Spirit. So the answer to the question of whether circumcision was required is answered in verse 5. Okay. Paul presents his Gospel. And then verse 5, "...but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour." Likely referring to Paul and these other apostles. So he's saying, listen, the Judaizers were saying that we need to have this Gentile Titus, for example, put him on display. He's here with us. He's a Greek, a Gentile. We'll put him on display and he needs to be circumcised. And he says, we, me and the other pillar apostles, they're saying no. Notice at the end of verse 3, Though he was a Greek, verse 3, let's look at the beginning, but not even Titus, and then the end of the verse, was compelled to be circumcised. In other words, by the pillar apostles. The answer to the question of whether circumcision was required is is there in verse 3 and verse 5. We did not compel Titus to be circumcised. We did not compel him to take on more works in order to be saved or to be accepted into the New Testament church. And so uh, Titus is really brought along as a test case. Paul's saying, listen, here's a person who came to Christ under my teaching, my preaching of the Gospel. He's a Greek, a Gentile. What do you think about this? And the apostles say, we're not going to compel him to be circumcised. Salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. And we're not going to... Enslave ourselves by requiring him, enslave ourselves or him by requiring this Jewish tradition. So, Paul gives two more reasons why his gospel is the true gospel. Number one, the apostles confirmed Paul's convert. And number two, the apostles confirmed Paul's gospel, verses 6 through 10. The apostles confirmed Paul's gospel. In verse 6, it sounds like he is disparaging these three apostles. He says, but from those who are of high reputation, he's probably using language that these Judaizers are using. So listen, Paul, not of high reputation. Let's really talk about James, Peter, and John. What do they think about the gospel? And they certainly would require circumcision. Paul says, those who were of high reputation, and then notice this parenthetical phrase, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Paul's not saying that the pillar apostles are unimportant or that the pillar apostles are inferior to him. He's not trying to minimize their authority. He's simply trying to stop the Judaizers and the Galatians from minimizing Paul's role of authority. Saying, listen, God doesn't show any partiality when it comes to the apostles just because they were with Christ all of his uh, ministerial life and I wasn't, doesn't make me any less than a po- that, uh, of an apostle than they. He's simply saying, "I am one of the apostles," and there really are no pillar apostles. You you think I'm a knockoff version, like I'm just a, uh, a secondary version of an apostle? But I am an original. And he says, "Those of reputation," verse six at the end of the verse, those who were of reputation, again, this is Peter, James, and John, contributed nothing to me. Paul was entrusted with the Gospel by Jesus Christ Himself. And he says, the way that I learned it was not because of these men. Remember, he's only in Jerusalem twice. This is the second time. And he had been preaching this Gospel all along. And notice he recognizes there's a distinction of how God has used each one of them in verses 7 and 8. He says that Peter was the, the apostle to the Jews while I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles. It's not that Peter was better because he got to go to the Jews. And it's not that Paul only preached to Gentiles, right? What was Paul's pattern when he would go into a city? What was his first thing he would do? Go to the synagogue, exactly. Who's going to be in the synagogue? Not Gentiles primarily going to be Jews. So Paul would still preach to the Jews, he was saying, but I'm also preaching to Gentiles. My main responsibility is to the Gentiles. And obviously we see that throughout the book of Acts. And the grace that I received was recognized by these three, verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They recognized that Paul's Preaching his gospel was legitimate. That it was grace given from God. And so they confirm Paul's gospel. And the way that they validate it is by recognizing the grace that's been given to him, verse 9. Verse 8, it says that uh, for he who effectually worked for Peter, effectually worked for me. Okay, so the same God, the same Spirit that worked in Peter is the same Spirit that worked in me. The second way they validate it is by giving them the right hand of fellowship. See that in the second part of verse 9? What is this right hand of fellowship? Maybe you've heard it in churches you've been to. Okay, let's take this time to go around and give each other the right hand of fellowship. Um, there's not a whole lot of talk about this right hand of fellowship other than right here in the Scriptures. And so we don't have a lot of understanding about what this is, but apparently according to Homer Kent, a commentator, he says the right hand was a symbol of friendship and trust and was used to finalize a treaty, very similar to how we use a right hand in business today. And so Paul and the other apostles are basically having mutual agreement that we're going to make an agreement here that this is legitimate, that Peter and the others would work to reach predominantly Jews and Paul would predominantly work you and Barnabas would predominantly work to reach the Gentiles. All right, so they gave the right hand of fellowship, the the hand of agreement. We agree with you, Paul. Further validation uh, for Paul's gospel being the true gospel by these pillar apostles is found in verse 10. And that is that they requested of me, Paul says, that I would give to the poor. And it's as if Paul's saying, remember this is a family relief visit, He's got the money that he brought from the Antioch church and he's interested in helping the poor. And they say, Paul, one of the things that we want you to do as an apostle is to give to the poor. And he pulls out a check and says, Here you go. This is from the Antioch church. This is what we've been working on. See, the very thing I wanted to do, you see that language at the end of verse 10? The very thing I wanted to do. That's what they asked me to do. So that gives further confirmation that... My gospel is the true gospel. That they are not better than I am. We preach the same message. So what we should see from this first part of the book that we've studied so far, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, is that the gospel message is critical. The gospel message is critical and it must not be turned away from. We must not turn away from the gospel. So, let me leave you with four things that our church must guard against in order to protect the message of the Gospel. How do we as a church protect the message of the Gospel? Number one, we need to guard against false teachers. We need to guard against false teachers. Paul said that they slip in, they sneak in, they're spying us out to lead us into bondage. Jude chapter 1, verse 4 says that these false teachers creep in. Okay, they don't come with big banners and walking down the center aisle saying that I'm from the pit of hell. They don't have false teacher written on their forehead and they most likely will not have a tattoo of Satan on their forearm. Okay, these people look just like you and me. They will quote the Scriptures. They will be proficient in the Scriptures. They will may even be able to argue from the Scriptures their points. They will use spiritual language. All the the words we use like gospel and salvation and baptism and all these words that we use, you know the way that you're going to know whether they're a false teacher or not? You're going to know them by their fruit. If their gospel is different from the gospel that we received from the Apostles, let them be accursed. They will teach that salvation comes by our works, not by Christ's finished work alone. Paul calls these people false brothers. If they come in and they try to convince you that you need to do more things in order to be accepted before God. And that's not the Gospel. This is very prevalent throughout the scriptures. Turn to Acts chapter 20. In fact, I think every New Testament book has a warning against false teachers except for one. I think that's Philemon. So the writers of scripture recognize that this is a significant issue in the life of the church that there are going to be false teachers who come in and who will look just like us. And we have to have a way of being able to detect them. Acts chapter 20. I'm just going to breeze through here verses 17 and following. Before I do, let me just mention that in Revelation, remember when the Spirit was speaking to the churches? He commended the church at Ephesus for testing these teachers to see if they were legitimate or not. He 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 condemned or challenged the church at Pergamum to say you're starting to allow the teaching of Balaam into your church. He condemned the Thyatiran church or or challenged them by saying you're accepting Jezebel in Philadelphia. You're denying Christ. So so we have to watch out for this. There's a constant guarding that has to take place. In Acts chapter 20, we have a um, a method here that's set up by the early leaders of the church. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. And he goes on. Skip down to verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard. He's talking to the elders of the church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Because I know, verse 29, that after My departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves even men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The method that Paul gives to the leaders of the church, elders, just another way to say pastors or overseers, to the pastors of the church he's saying, listen, You need to guard yourself and the flock from these savage wolves that will come in among you. Not only will they come from the outside, but they'll actually come in from among your own people. They'll rise up to a place of prominence. You've got to watch out for that. And here's how you do it. Don't forget that I taught you all of the counsel of God. Verse 27. I didn't shrink back from that, so so I would suggest to to you, to us as a congregation, that our primary responsibility as a church in guarding against false teachers ought to be to stay committed to the apostles' teaching. And that means we need to have the Word of God taught to us regularly. We need to continue in it. Otherwise, we won't be able to spot when the error comes in and takes over. We have to be committed to the apostles' teaching. And that's... Charge throughout the New Testament is given not just to the leaders, but also to the congregation itself. In fact, who are most of the epistles written to? Other than the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Titus, and uh, Thessalonians. Okay, who are the other epistles written to? They're written to the churches. As a whole, you members of the church, you are the pillar in support of the truth. How can you be the pillar in support of the truth you're not understanding, loving, learning the Apostles' teaching. And so that's our job as a church guard against false teachers. Number two, we need to guard our church membership. We need to guard our church membership. There's a lot I would like to say about this, but the main thing I want to get across to you is that we need to make sure that our members are believers. Okay, and that means two things. We need to guard the front door of the church and we need to open up the back door. Now let me explain both of those things. We need to guard the front door of the church. What I mean by that is not that we need to hire a bouncer or a security guard who's standing out and waiting to see your Christian card when you come in. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, unbelievers are welcome to come to our church. They're welcome to come and sit in among us. And Paul says when they do, they should see the love that is in our body, the unity, and want to to be a part of that. So that's not a problem. I'm not saying unbelievers can't come to our church. What I'm talking about is church membership. We cannot allow unbelievers to become members of our church. That's what I mean by guarding the front door. And the reason that is the case is because members have responsibility. And members are given, in a sense, okay, understand what I'm saying here. They're given, in a sense, we're giving confirmation that they are Christians. We're saying, yes, you are a Jesus follower. We're going to link arms with you because we recognize that you are one of us. But do you see the disastrous results that come when we do that with an unbeliever? We give that person a false assurance of their salvation. You're okay. And we tell the world that our church doesn't care about sin and unrighteousness because we have people among our membership that we've allowed to come into our midst and be a part of us who really aren't Christians. And now we've said something about the name of Jesus Christ because the church is a representation of who Christ is. And when done rightly... It will, it will allow the glory of God to shine apart from people getting in the way. So guard the front door and then open up the back door. Okay, Now you understand I'm talking about membership here. When I say open up the back door, I'm talking about church discipline. But there will be occasion when people are unrepentant toward their sin. That when they're confronted with their sin, they say, I don't want to turn from it. I'm fine. I'm not going to turn from it. And so what I'm suggesting is if we allow those people to continue in our midst, then we will harm the purity of the church. We will, we will uh, cause the purity of our church to, to be defamed. We'll cause it to, to be ruined. So one of the things that we do at our church to guard the front door is we take prospective members through a six-week class on what our church believes and practices and follow that up with a membership interview to find out if these people have legitimate testimony of saving faith and credible baptism following that. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. okay? We can't see into people's hearts. You can't see into people's hearts. We can't always know for sure who's saved and who's, who isn't. And that's why we need to have this other mechanism which is opening up the back door so that when the fruit a false doctrine or godless living comes up, then we have a way to allow them to leave our church and to remain, keep intact the purity of the church that's required by Jesus Christ. Do you see? Guard the membership of our church. Number three, guard the gospel. The third way we guard the gospel is by guarding against legalism. Guarding against legalism. The natural inclination that we have as humans is to try to add something to the Gospel. That I need to give something else in order for it to be sufficient. But here's the thing about the Gospel. It's all set on its own. Because the Gospel is Jesus Christ. And His finished work. And the key word there is finished. It's done. It's not partially here, I've done this part, now you just need to add to it. No, the Gospel's done. God accepts you on the basis of faith. And that is not considered a work in His eyes. That's simply a response to the work that He's already done in you. Because if if there were any works that were required for us to come to Christ, then why did Christ die? Christ substituted Himself in our place. He died for the sins that we could not. So we guard the gospel by guarding against legalism, the idea that we have to do more things in order to be accepted by God. No, we are accepted by God because of Christ, because we wear His robes. And He's already paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And then finally, we guard the gospel by guarding against the other extreme, which is lawlessness. You see, the one extreme is, okay, we're, we're enslaving ourselves with more things, more works we got to do in order to be accepted by God. But then the other extreme is we take all that off and we say, you know what? We're not going to have any of those shackles. We're not going to be under all those laws. And so what does that mean over here? The other extreme. Lawlessness. Licentiousness. I can do whatever I want because Christ has set me free. Paul's going to talk about that in the second part of his epistle here when we get there in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Paul says, when you were freed from your sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You weren't freed from doing anything you want or freed to do anything you want. You, were, you, were, you became enslaved, in a sense, to righteousness. Everyone is enslaved to someone. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, not to use your freedom as a cloak for evil. There are many people who have felt the burden of the legalistic constraints. Don't do this. Don't do that. And when they finally recognize they don't have to do all those things to be accepted by God, then they can move too far to the other extreme and say, I can do this. I can do that. And it's a shame. Because we actually, we actually are re enslaving ourselves to the sins that we once were freed from. Do you see? The gospel is critical and it must be at the center of who we are and what we do at this church. In order to do that, we need to guard against false teachers. We need to guard our church membership. We need to guard against legalism and we need to guard against lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help us to walk away from here uh, with a better understanding of Your truth. And a better recognition of what Christ really did for us on the cross. It is simply amazing to consider that our salvation was not anything that we had done. It was all Your mercy, Your grace. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves so that no one can boast. It was a gift of You. But You did create us to do something. You did make us a new spiritual creature for a purpose. And that is to do good works. So we pray that You would help us to be responsible in in our uh, charge that we've been given. And that we wouldn't ever take credit for them or see that that is something that earns Your favor. We're constantly in need of Your unmerited favor on us. We think we earn so much before You when really we are wretches before You apart from Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we can, we can obey You. We can follow You. We can please You. Not of ourselves, but of Jesus, but as a result of what Jesus Christ has done. And we want to, to be a church that guards the Gospel. We don't want to be a place that defects from the Gospel, but one that upholds it by learning, understanding, loving the teaching of the Apostles and that the Gospel that we love would be evident in the way that we relate to other people within our church, the purity of our body, and the spread of the Gospel in our area. Lord, give us the wisdom and the strength to help us see how this plays out, how we practically do these things individually and as a church body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.